A nationally uniform NIL rights law, which only Congress can establish, is essential to uniform national standards. The uniformity, I think that's a significant part of it. It should be preemptive of state law, creating a single national standard. A consistent national law is critical. That's not necessarily the best one. That leads to my third point. A federal model, a national model, would make more sense. We need, uh, of course, the nationalized world. If you put your finger on one of the most important reasons for having a national standard, a single national model, we need a national standard. There was a patchwork problem. Establishing a patchwork of differing and conflicting rules would be better than patchwork especially with the patchwork that we're going to see starting July 1. How would a patchwork of 51 different laws? So it wouldn't be a patchwork if we set up a patchwork. Collegiate athletics among a patchwork of state laws is untenable. Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, which is bigamateurism.com. And I've been writing in a blog for, gosh, almost two and a half years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. Okay, wow, things are moving so fast, it's really hard to keep up, and I've got my eye on five different balls right now. But what I want to do in this episode is supplement some of the things I talked about in this last episode about the June 9th hearing in the Senate Commerce Committee to provide some context for how this central issue of preemption has made it into the lap of the Commerce Committee under these circumstances. And remember, the Commerce Committee has original first-line jurisdiction over sports-related issues. And that's where this whole discussion started back in February of 2020. So I really want to focus on preemption here. And I don't think I did a very good job in the last episode of explaining exactly what preemption is, what its origins are, and how it has been used and applied by the federal government because it is a constitutional federal power and it is an extraordinary power. So I want to talk a little bit about how Congress has used the preemption power over time, the context in which it's been used and the vital federal interests that are normally at stake when uh, Congress decides to exercise the preemption power of the federal government. And a little compare and contrast here is going to be really revealing in terms of how audacious the NCAA's power grab is. But I need to lay a little foundation here, and I'm going to be actually jumping back and forth between the very beginning of this nil campaign, nil compensation campaign that the NCAA has used to try to pursue these extraordinary federal protections and immunities. And some of the work product that has come on the backside that really informs how this whole process moved along. And I would say that the Rosetta Stone was the NCAA Board of Governors Federal and State Legislation Working Group's final report that was issued on April 17th 
of 2020. This was during COVID. So I'm going to walk through the history of that working group and the documents and the recommendations that it made. And that is an NCAA working group. So Mark Emmert can't say, well, I have nothing to do with that. No, this was a working group put together by the NCAA Board of Governors. And Mark Emmert was obviously in lockstep with that initiative. And then to help you understand just how fundamentally dishonest the NCAA has been from the very beginning of this name, image, and likeness compensation campaign, I'm going to do a quick walk through two bills that show exactly what the NCAA has been seeking all along, and they're not at all what the NCAA claims it was seeking. And those two bills came out of the Commerce Committee, the first one by Roger Wicker in December of 2020, the second by Jerry Moran in February of 2021. Wicker is a Republican from Mississippi, and Moran is a Republican from Kansas. And these two bills are just stunning in their disguised motives. And the Moran bill, I mean, this transcends just a discussion over nil and a discussion about how manipulative the NCAA has been in its congressional campaign. The Moran bill shows a complete failure of the legislative process and the extent to which special interests own the United States Congress. And his bill essentially creates a sovereign state status for the NCAA with the full powers of the federal government, but no accountability, and grants the NCAA the authority to serve subpoenas for documents, for witnesses, for deposition testimony. The Moran bill creates a police state for the NCAA with complete insulation from any scrutiny, from any oversight, and from any accountability. And the NCAA has been saying for decades in its ruthless enforcement and infractions processes that it needs subpoena power. How in the world can it do the righteous work on behalf of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete and all this happy malarkey unless it has absolute police powers to go in and just turn these bad actors inside out and upside down. And that's the mentality that they've had really from the beginning of the 1950s when the NCAA got its initial enforcement powers. And that was the Walter Byers view of the world. And it's all black hat, white hat. The NCAA is the white hat and everybody else is the black hat. And that basic binary view of the world from the NCAA's perspective has been incorporated wholesale into this discussion about name, image, and likeness and all of these draconian requirements that they place on agents and boosters and third parties and athletes. And they treat them like criminals before they've committed a crime. And that's just the way the NCAA rolls. And this Moran bill just hands the NCAA, a private nonprofit entity, this massive hammer to just swing indiscriminately at any person, organization, or thing that stands in the way of its multi-billion dollar revenue streams. I mean, it is just a stunning power grab. And the way that Moran 
puts it this apparatus together, this sovereign state format together, is through a highly unusual governmental entity called the government corporation. And I'm going to talk in some detail about that. But wow, I mean, and, and when you look at how Moran's bill was covered in the media, there was a Sports Illustrated article by a guy who has been writing on sports issues, and he's considered the go-to guy on these legal and policy issues. He described Moran's bill as, quote unquote, middle of the road. And that just shows you the extent to which the mainstream media has absolutely no idea what the hell's going on here. And it's really important to break these bills down element by element and disguised motive by disguised motive to understand what's really happening here. But to begin this, I want to press rewind back to May of 2019, because that's when you really started to see a concrete, conscious effort on the part of the NCAA and then later the Power Five to implement a strategy that placed them on offense in pursuing their interests. And I've talked about this in prior episodes. When you go back and you look historically at the NCAA's relationship with Congress, it has almost always been in the context of Congress stepping in when there's been some issue mostly relating to the NCAA's anti-competitive business practices. And the NCAA has been defensive and they have bobbed and weaved and they've done the bare minimum to try to turn down the heat from Congress, but they really haven't fundamentally changed their business practices or their motivations or their approach in how they deal with external regulators. It's the NCAA's way or the highway. And Congress has let them get away with it. Congress has threatened to take action. Well, if you don't do this voluntarily, we'll have no choice and you don't really want us to do anything. And they never have. So the NCAA through its lobbying, through its connections, through its broad political network, has largely been left to do whatever the hell it wants to do. And because of that, the NCAA really never felt the need to go to Congress to ask for any protections. They have always been on defense. That changed completely. That narrative, that script flipped in 2019. And it started in May of 2019 with the beginning discussions about a possible state law out of California. It was getting a lot of press and it was really a response to O'Bannon, which left the athletes with very little. And the NCAA was just coming off O'Bannon and the attorney's fees litigation didn't finish until June of 2018. So this May 2019 discussion about name, image, and likeness is less than a year after the NCAA has just finished fighting to the death and spending $100 million to take the position that college athletes would not receive a penny of name, image, and likeness compensation. That's where they were coming from. So we come into this May 2019 period. And the NCAA is trying to figure out how it's going to respond to increasing pressure. And a lot of that pressure came from the early stages of the formation of this law in California, which ultimately was passed in September of 2019. But there had been talk throughout 2019 that it was coming down the pike. And then in mid-May of 2019, North Carolina congressman, Republican congressman, Mark Walker, introduced a bill in the House of Representatives that would have stripped the NCAA 
of its tax-exempt status unless it made voluntary rules changes to permit college athletes to receive compensation from their name, image, and likeness. On the day that that bill was introduced, May 14th of 2019, the NCAA announced the formation of this working group, the NCAA Board of Governors Federal and State Legislation Group. And that was an important step because that working group became the conduit for the NCAA's offensive campaign in the United States Congress, primarily the United States Senate. And from the very beginning of the formation of that working group, which was tasked initially to decide whether it should continue its opposition to name, image, and likeness, or whether it should try to modernize its rules to allow nil compensation. The real purpose was to get ahead of the debate and to the extent possible, beat back any state-based or congressional-based threat to the NCAA's business interests. That's what it was all about. And As the NCAA dug in, when there was a discussion about the California law in 2019, before that law was passed, Mark Emmert and the NCAA, they're sending letters to Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, telling him that if he signed that bill, the NCAA was going to sue him. (laughs) They weren't saying, look, we are interested in name, image, and likeness benefits, and we're trying to work in good faith here. But their initial posture with the state of California was up yours. You do what we say or we're going to sue. And there's been increasing talk about the NCAA suing states whose nil laws are going into effect. And there was a lot of discussion about that just at this hearing last week on June 9th. And the NCAA hasn't ruled it out. But in response to those questions from Senator Schatz, I, in the last episode, I, I referred to him as Senator Schatz. Apologies to Senator Schatz. I mispronounced his name. But in response to questions about whether the NCAA intended to file a lawsuit under the Dormant Commerce Clause to nullify these state laws, to do the very same thing they would get through preemption from Congress, Mark Emmert wouldn't give a straight answer. That issue is alive. So in some ways, despite two years of discussion about name, image, and likeness and all these promises, the NCAA is landing now in June of 2021 in the exact same place that it started in May of 2019, and that is up yours to the athletes, up yours to the states who have passed these name, image, and likeness laws, up yours to modernizing its rules on nil or any other form of athlete compensation. And when public opinion started to turn on the NCAA, as this California law was being debated and then ultimately enacted and passed and signed into legislation, the NCAA, through this working group, switched their public strategy. And it was purely a public strategy because it wasn't at all consistent with what they were actually doing behind the scenes. But their public strategy is, well, yeah, we, we're all on board with nil compensation and we're going to do everything we can to facilitate nil compensation and modernize NCAA rules. But only within the guardrails. The guardrails, what are the guardrails? The guardrails are amateurism, the collegiate model, and the student athlete which means that we're going to provide nil compensation 
Yes, we are. And we're serious about it. And we care about these athletes and we're going to work diligently to make this happen. But boy, it's a tough thing. It's a really tough thing. And you're going to have to give us time and you're going to have to be patient with this because this doesn't happen overnight. And the NCAA built their nil compensation campaign around the collegiate model, which means that athletes can be compensated for their name, image, and likeness, but only within the confines of principles that prohibit compensation. And the media swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. So the NCAA said, well, we can't have pay for play. Universities can't pay these kids. If there's going to be any nil marketplace, it's going to have to be with third parties. And it can't have anything to do with their athletic talent, ability, performance, or notoriety. And it can't happen at any time when they're actually engaging in athletic activities. And it has to be at fair market value. And it has to preserve the non-employment status of student athletes. And none of these nil deals by athletes can conflict with the existing contracts that universities had with sports and apparel companies or other third parties who steal the intellectual property of the revenue-producing athletes. And then no name, image, and likeness deal could be an inducement for a player to come to a particular school. They had to maintain the distinction between professional and college sports. There had to be absolute transparency. And yes, you can hire an agent, but only If you and the agent and any third party you're contracting with submit to a state-sanctioned or a federally-sanctioned documentary strip search of every transaction, every word you speak, every thought you think, and then, and only then, will you be able to make money from your name, image, and likeness. Now, that obviously makes sense to the NCAA and in-system stakeholder beneficiaries because that's the way they have viewed athletes all along. But the mainstream media picked up on the working group's initial description of the acceptable terms of name, image, and likeness compensation and just said, oh, sure, that makes sense without any critical examination. And then this working group does an interim report in October, I think it came out October 23rd, 2019, that that was essentially a more formal presentation of some of these guardrails that they threw up at the very beginning. And then on October 29th at their quarterly meeting in Atlanta, the NCAA Board of Governors adopted the working group's recommendations from its interim report. And the next day, Actually, even the day that the Board of Governors made that announcement, there were breathless headlines from coast to coast about the fact that the NCAA Board of Governors had changed the NCAA's rules to explicitly permit name, image, and likeness compensation. And I wrote about this in my blog, and it's just really, actually scary The extent to which the mainstream media, and this is from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to ESPN, you pick your major outlet, mainstream or sports, and they all said the exact same thing, and it was fundamentally false. The NCAA didn't change a single rule. To this day, they haven't changed a single rule, and the NCAA Board of Governors 
press release that generated all this buzz was an amazing piece of propaganda that led the media to believe that there had been a change. But when you actually read the document itself, no such thing happened. And there was no suggestion that that was going to happen in the short term or maybe even ever. And some of this is just the, the nature of news cycles now and how quickly information moves and how journalists just rely on press releases and summaries and things that are very easy to manipulate rather than looking at the source document, reading it critically, and then comparing what the document says to how the information is being presented by people who have a vested financial interest in promoting a certain message. That doesn't happen anymore. And this is just a perfect example of that. So you had all this momentum out in the atmosphere of college sports that something big was happening here. This was going to be a transformative change for college sports. And that's exactly what the NCAA wanted for public relations purposes. But then three weeks later, actually two and a half weeks later, on November 16th of 2019, and we only know this after the fact because this wasn't disclosed until the working group's final report on April 17th of 2020. But in their final report, they point to November 16th, 2019, as the day that there came this belief on the working group that in order to make this name, image, and likeness thing work, they really needed some help from the federal government. And so the working group f secretly formed the Presidential Subcommittee on Congressional Action. And I'm going to go now to the working group's final report, which is dated April 17th, but it wasn't released to the media, I think, until April 28th or 29th. And I read it right away. I read the entire thing, and I read it again. And again, I have a, my dog-eared copy here. It's really funny looking. I mean, this thing is just, it is highlighted, and it's noted, and it has folded pages and all that stuff. But when I saw this section on the Presidential Subcommittee on Congressional Action, which doesn't appear in this 30-page report until page 25, I immediately went and did a Google search to figure out where this came from because I had never heard of it. And I've been following this stuff very, very carefully. And it turns out there was zero mention of that subcommittee until after the this report was released in April. So nobody knew about this except for NCAA insiders, NCAA lawyers, NCAA lobbyists, and select senators because this was the conduit through which the NCAA started their aggressive lobbying campaign in the Senate targeted to getting these extraordinary federal protections and immunities that the final report claims were essential if the NCAA was going to be able to offer name, image, and likeness compensation at all. These were a condition of the NCAA voluntarily changing its rules to permit name, image, and likeness compensation. So I want to first talk about how the NCAA describes this presidential subcommittee. And there's a, the first section is background, where they're trying to explain what's going on here. And they say, as the working group discussed possible reforms for consideration by the NCAA membership, it became apparent that the potential impediments posed by these outside legal forces 
could significantly undermine the association's ability to take meaningful action in this area. To address this issue, and in response to the introduction of federal NIL legislation and interest in NIL by members of Congress, and what they're referring to there are the Mark Walker bill in uh, 2019, and then a Donna Shalala bill that really wasn't a name, image, and likeness law, but it was introduced in 2019. I don't, it was at or about the time that this presidential subcommittee was formed by the working group. But Shalala's bill was going to do a grand synthesis analysis of college sports, I would argue akin to the Carnegie Report, this uh, 1929 report that I've talked so much about in prior episodes, that was just going to do this holistic examination of college sports. And the thing I loved about Shalala's proposed committee was that they were going to have subpoena power. <laughs> They were going to be able to call the NCAA in under subpoena and get to the heart of some of the uh, stuff that's going on behind the NCAA fortress wall. And that didn't gain a lot of traction. And then, unfortunately, in my judgment, at least for athletes' rights, Shalala lost her bid for re-election, and she's no longer in Congress. Neither is Mark Walker. And I think I said in prior episodes that uh, these bills that came out of the Senate had no bipartisan support and that only the bill, the Gonzalez-Cleaver bill in the House did have bipartisan support. Actually, both Walker and Shalala had bipartisan co-sponsors, but those bills just didn't go anywhere. But in any event, the working group says that On November 16, 2019, the Board of Governors Executive Committee directed that the subcommittee be formed. The purpose of the subcommittee was to provide input to the Board of Governors and the NCAA president on potential assistance that the association should seek from Congress to support any efforts to modernize the rules in NCAA sports while maintaining the latitude that the association needs to further its mission to oversee and promote intercollegiate athletics on a national scale. And at this point, I just want to note that this is where the NCAA working group, the Board of Governors working group, starts this dance between using nil as the ostensible purpose for these requests, but then also to talk about their broader interests as an association. So when they say support any efforts to modernize the rule in NCAA sports, they're not talking about nil. They're talking about NCAA, amateurism, collegiate model, student athlete compensation limits of any kind. Nil is just one subset of that. And that's so important because that is a conflation that the NCAA has gotten away with in Congress. And it's just now finally being exposed. And I think that's why Senator Schott's questions to Mark Emmert were so, so important. So this presidential subcommittee, according to the report, conducted a total of seven meetings slash teleconferences between December 16th, 2019, and the date of this report, which was April 17th of 2020. And that's really important too. And when I go through the timeline in detail, this period around December 16th is so important because that's when you really start to see the in-system stakeholders getting aggressive in pursuing their interests in Congress. And there was discussion among the Power Five about whether or not the NCAA and Mark Emmert were going to be the the best messengers there. But the NCAA wound up taking the lead in large part because the Power Five football interests don't have to pay for those initiatives, the legal initiatives, the lobbying initiatives, all that's paid for out of revenue from March Madness money. So anyway, they go through all this stuff about the evolving legal landscape and 
related issues that threaten to undermine the collegiate athletics model and significantly limit our ability to meet the needs of student athletes moving forward, blah, blah, blah. And then they say this, and this is really important too, because this goes to the Iron Throne component of the overall NCAA strategy. And that is that the NCAA and only the NCAA is in a position to sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation. And that issue has come up in dozens of different ways throughout this name, image, and likeness debate. And it was on full display at the hearing last week on June 9th. But they say, the subcommittee believes that the NCAA is the most appropriate and experienced entity to oversee intercollegiate athletics given the uniqueness of the collegiate model of athletics, its membership-driven nature, and daily connection to student-athletes, the breadth and scope of its administrative operations, its willingness to respond to the evolving needs of student-athletes, and its long track record of providing remarkable opportunities for student-athletes to gain access to higher education. So... All right, they've set the table with all the NCAA love they can muster. And then they get to the recommendations. And so they say, in light of the above and driven by our desire to do what is best for student athletes, the presidential subcommittee urges the NCAA Board of Governors to immediately engage Congress to accomplish the following. A, ensure federal preemption over state name, image, and likeness laws. B, establish an antitrust exemption for the association, the NCAA. C, safeguard the non-employment status of student athletes. D, maintain the distinction between student athletes and professional athletes. And E, uphold the NCAA's values, including diversity, inclusion, and gender equity. And that list, I just want to make a couple of observations. First of all, the preemption provision as characterized by the working group and this subcommittee, this presidential subcommittee, was intended to be limited to name, image, and likeness laws. And when I get to talking about the Wicker and Moran bills, and you see how expansive they are, they are not limited in any way to name, image, and likeness laws. And they would include any and all NCAA compensation limits and eligibility rules. And that's part of the bait and switch. So when you look at what Wicker and Moran did in the content of their bill, and you then go back and you compare it to, the, to what the NCAA working group was putting out for public relations purposes, you begin to see just how uh, dishonest this whole nil compensation discussion has been from the very beginning. And then the other thing is, Mark Emmert, under oath in front of the United States Senate on June 9th, testified that, to his knowledge, no person or entity, including the NCAA, had ever argued for a total antitrust exemption. First of all, that's absolutely not true just within the four corners of the Austin suit. And I've talked about that. They are absolutely seeking complete antitrust immunity from the United States Supreme Court as we speak. And a decision is likely to come down any day. But the way that they characterize the antitrust exemption that they want in this working group document 
is not limited at all. So you, you have these two things literally sitting side by side. And on preemption, they explicitly say over state name, image, and likeness laws. The very next provision says establish an antitrust exemption. There are no limits placed on it. So the only obvious inference there from the way those are presented is that they want as broad an antitrust exemption as is possible. And then when they go on to explain or justify why they want complete immunity from responsibility or liability under United States fair competition laws, there are no limits. And the things that they talk about to justify that are threats to the regulatory model that had absolutely nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. The Austin suit has nothing to do with name, image, and likeness. And they're seeking antitrust immunity in that case. And the antitrust immunity they want from the United States Congress, and they're not going to get it. I don't think they're going to get complete antitrust immunity, but they certainly are seeking it. The working group recommended it. They're seeking it in Austin. And for Mark Emmert to suggest and to testify that nobody he knows, that he hasn't been involved with any efforts to get total antitrust immunity, is an absolute outright lie. And Mark Emmert knows it. And this document is proof of that. And this is, Mark Emmert owns this document. He can't say, oh, that's the Board of Governors, or oh, that's the working group. No, this is Mark Emmert. And he's been the messenger on this in the Senate. So, I mean, it's just a, a stunning denial on his part. But when you look at these things, these, these just amazing things, you don't get the sense of how big and how audacious this regulatory power grab is, the way that they present it. And the other thing that's important about this timeline, so in April, so this final report comes out in April, and the way that the working group characterizes it, they're saying, gosh, we, we need to do something right now, suggesting that up until April of 2020, there hadn't been any inroads made in the Senate. And that is absolutely false. In fact, they already had a five-month head start of aggressive lobbying. And you have to remember that this is after the NCAA has brought all of its policy and uh, political and legal strategies inside the Beltway. And that's been true since 2014. And I talked about that in the last episode on those 2014 hearings in the Commerce Committee. And so you've had Brownstein Hyatt, this high-powered lobbying firm in D.C., working Congress for seven years before the NCAA really starts to see some payoff here in 2019 and 2020. So it's not as if the NCAA just woke up in April and said, oh, gosh, I think we ought to start lobbying Congress. They had been working Congress for years and from the beginning of this nil debate in May of 2019 through to the release of the final report in April, the NCAA and the Power Five were working overtime, laying awake at night, just as their lawyers and lobbyists were, thinking of ways that they could structure their strategy and manipulate Congress to achieve one of the most audacious regulatory power grabs in the history of American sports. And that's what they presented as just some casual, oh, we just need these few little things in order to provide name, image, and likeness compensation. And that is the heart of the bait and switch of this entire campaign. And before I get into a discussion of preemption, one more thing I want to point out. And I mentioned this in prior episodes, but I really want to emphasize it again here. The California law, which the NCAA held up as the gold standard threat 
to the NCAA. And the way that the NCAA went after the state of California and went after Gavin Newsom and turned their pit bull lawyers and front people on Newsom and anyone who supported the California law, you would have thought that that law was an existential present threat to the NCAA's existence and business model. But the fact of the matter is the California legislature went to extraordinary lengths to work with the NCAA. And proof of that is the very first provision of the uh, bill itself, the Fair Pay to Play Act, which was passed on September 30th of 2019. And that section, it's section 1A, sub A, states, it is the intent of the legislature, the California legislature, to monitor the National Collegiate Athletic Association Working Group created in May 2019 to examine issues relating to the use of a student's name, image, and likeness and revisit this issue to implement significant findings and recommendations of the NCAA Working Group in furtherance of the statutory changes proposed by this act. And then the act set an effective date of 2023. So remember, this is in 2019. So the law wasn't going to go into effect for four years. And it was the specific intent of the California Assembly, the, the California legislature, to work with the NCAA. And while the state of California was waiting in good faith to see what the NCAA was going to do on its claim to modernizing its rules and voluntary rules changes and all this stuff, Behind the scenes, in Congress, they are lobbying for federal protections and immunities, including preemption, which would have nullified the California law and rendered it null and void. It would have disappeared if the NCAA gets preemption, which leads us then into what exactly is preemption? And in these discussions, the NCAA and some commentators and law professors who are weighing in and policymakers and all that, they talk about these terms, but the word preemption doesn't really have a lot of meaning to most people. And it's a term of art and it's a constitutional term of art. And when we talk about federal preemption of state laws, what, what does that mean? And where does that power come from? How has it been used? And when is it appropriate and when is it not appropriate? And the doctrine of preemption where federal law supersedes state law and when the federal government decides to regulate in a certain area, it can explicitly say in a piece of legislation, this federal law prohibits any state from regulating in the same subject matter area. And that makes federal law supreme over state law. And the federal government is saying states have no role here. Okay. How do they get that power? Because your first question would be, well, wait a minute, what about states' rights? And that's a good question. Because in the exercise of preemption and the federal government telling states what they can't do, that invokes the most fundamental principles of federalism and the powers of the state government versus the power of the federal government. And the state interests are protected through the 10th Amendment which says that the power is not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively, or to the people. So that sets forth this basic balance between federal and state authority. 
And in areas that have not been explicitly reserved for federal power, the states have the residual power or the separate power. But this preemption provision, where does that come from? Well, an overlay to that allocation of power between federal and state laws contained in Article 6 of the United States Constitution. And it is commonly referred to as the Supremacy Clause. And so it doesn't use the word preemption, but it establishes the principle that when the federal government deems that that it has sufficient national interests, federal interests, that it needs to protect, that its decision to exercise power in those areas are supreme, and the states can't interfere with that. So it specifically says, This Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, or which shall be made, under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby, anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding. So the federal government, Congress, has used that power, the the Supremacy Clause power, to exercise broad federal jurisdiction, exclusive jurisdiction, in areas that it deems to be of a significant and vital federal interest. And just to give you a few examples of the areas in which the federal government and Congress have exercised their preemption power, I'm going to turn to a post that I wrote, and this was over a year ago. This was on June 4th of 2020 when I was talking about the NCAA's campaign to crush athletes' rights, revenue-producing athletes' rights. And I was looking at all these things that they were asking for through the working group and in their stealth campaign in the Senate. And that campaign is funded by revenue from Division I men's basketball players, by the way. But I wrote a post called Supremacy, and it was titled The NCAA's Campaign to Crush Athletes' Rights, Part 4, Supremacy. And I talked about the preemption of state laws, not just state name, image, and likeness laws, because even though the working group says they're limiting their requests to nil, that is not what they're doing. And they're asking for an absolute preemption provision that would cover any NCAA compensation limit or eligibility rule. So in talking about preemption, I gave some examples of areas in which Congress has traditionally exercised its preemption powers. And as I walk through this list, I want you to think about how those interests compare to protecting the financial interests of a private non profit association, which is all this debate is about. It's about protecting the incomes, the revenue streams, and the institutional interests of the beneficiaries of low-cost athlete labor. That's it. Because if the NCAA gets all these things, preemption, antitrust immunity, athletes can't be employees, then the existing uh, business model, the NCAA business model, this private business model is going to be federalized and the athletes will have absolutely no recourse. None. Game, set, match. The athletes' rights movement is over. And that's the purpose of the NCAA's quest for the Iron Throne. And I don't want to get too deep in the weeds on preemption theory There are different types of preemption. And when I was in private practice as an attorney, I did a fair amount of work in the preemption area. And at one time, I was very fluent in preemption law, but that's been a good long while. But the short version is that the federal government doesn't 
exercise this extraordinary constitutional power to protect private interests, or it shouldn't. And when you look at these areas, so public health and safety is a traditional area in which the federal government has preempted state laws because of the nature of the national interest, the federal interest, the compelling federal interest. An example in in health and safety are warning requirements on medicines and on products, on tobacco products. The Federal Cigarette Labeling and Advertising Act of 1965 required a single uniform label because of the growing evidence that tobacco products kill. And so the United States government The federal government said this is a sufficient, compelling interest to have a single uniform warning put on tobacco products and that no state could come in and require a different or inconsistent warning. Nuclear safety, the the use of radioactive materials is governed at the federal level. We don't want states imposing different uh, requirements that might be unsafe. And it's such a compelling federal interest that the federal government says, no, we're taking this over. The environment, the same thing. There is a compelling federal interest to protect the environment, and the federal government is best positioned to do that. Civil rights. So the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which abolishes slavery, is a quintessential preemption provision because no state can come in and say, we're going to pass a law that's inconsistent with that. No, we agree. This is an important federal interest, and we're going to have one federal requirement here. And the Voting Rights Act, the legislation that followed the Reconstruction Amendments and then the Civil Rights legislation in the 1960s, the Voting Rights Act explicitly preempts state constitutions. The federal interest in protecting minority voting rights is so compelling that the federal government said to states, we don't care what your constitution says. We, this has to be done at a national level because of the nature of the federal interest. And then national economic interests. And one example of that is the 1974 Employee Retirement Income Security Act, known as ERISA. And that law has an express preemption provision. And we're talking about express preemption here. The, the implied preemption is complicated. But this is where Congress explicitly includes a provision that says, yes, we intend to preempt. And then the only question is, the scope of the preemption, not whether Congress intended to preempt, but what the scope of that preemption is. And the ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, was designed to encourage employers to provide health care coverage and retirement benefits in a way that didn't bind them to sometimes very complicated, very provincial state laws. So, There was a compelling federal interest there. And in all of those cases, I think it's difficult to argue that the exercise of the constitutional power of preemption and making federal law supreme over state law wasn't a good thing. All those things needed to happen. I think it's hard to make the case that the federal government doesn't have a role that trumps the state's interests. And then on the flip side of that, and I just have to note this, I noted this in one of my posts, but... In these hearings in the Senate, the people who have been leading the charge on federal preemption on this Mickey Mouse issue to protect the individual interests of a single nonprofit association 
and then a bunch of rich white guys making money off of it. Okay, the people promoting those interests are the state rights guys. Where's Ted Cruz? Where's Lindsey Graham? Where's Roger Wicker on states' rights on this whole nil debate? They've just swallowed their microphone, and all of a sudden state rights don't exist, and they're going Bernie Sanders' big government. They want the federal government to come in and take over the regulation of college sports and federalize compensation limits that impede competition, that violate antitrust laws. You can't make this stuff up. But what does it tell you? It tells you that all of those guys, Cruz and Graham and Wicker and Moran and pick your Republican who's pounding their chest on state rights and free markets. And those are the guys that are carrying the NCAA's water. And so one of the things I think is really important to understand here is that the way that the NCAA has structured its campaign in the Senate, they got those first hearings in February of 2020, where they came to Congress and Mark Emmert was saying, we need your help. We need your help. And there are all these articles that came out around the time of that hearing saying, yes, the NCAA needs the federal government's help so it can provide these name, image, and likeness compensation opportunities to student athletes because the NCAA is just so concerned about the well-being of college athletes. And this really wasn't about college athletes. This was about revenue-producing athletes, and they were trying to protect their pile of cash and all the people who feel like their interests would be disrupted if athletes got uh, a meaningful piece of the pie. So this was all about uh, keeping the money in the right pockets, and there's no question about that. But the NCAA was extraordinarily successful in their positioning, and they got their money's worth from Brownstein Hyatt on this count. They framed the debate in a way that the debate started having presumed the adequacy of the federal interest or without any discussion of the federal interest. That was actually more accurate. There was no discussion about how the use of federal preemption or immunity from antitrust laws fits into the mosaic of how those extraordinary powers have been used historically. And that was an explicit part of the strategy is to just not talk about that. We're already beyond that now. And we're talking about how, not whether. That was one of the central themes of Anthony Gonzalez's testimony in that very first hearing on a subcommittee of commerce. And Gonzalez was the very first witness to testify in any of these five hearings that have been held so far. And that was the message. We're beyond the weather or the big picture decisions about going forward on nil. It's happening. And now, because it's happening, we have to make sure we're doing it sensibly and within all these guardrails and all the propaganda that has come out. So that was a very effective strategy on the NCAA's part. But when you look at the interests that the United States government has protected through preemption, and you compare it to what the NCAA is asking for here, it not only doesn't pass the blush test, it's, it's just stunning to me that United States senators haven't looked Mark Emmert in the eye or these conference commissioners or these university presidents or their colleagues who are demanding these hearings and saying, get the hell out of this hearing room. You are making a mockery of the legislative process. We have no business talking about this simply doesn't pass the blush test, but that's not what's happening. We're treating this like a serious debate, a legitimate use 
of the federal preemption power. And again, that just speaks to the extraordinary power that the NCAA has cultivated and the Power Five have cultivated and how they're using that power now through every vehicle possible, through the lawyers, through the lobbyists, through their state interests to the senators and Power Five states and, and through the Republican relations campaign to make this seem like just an ordinary uh, course of congressional business. And sure, we just need a little preemption. We just need a little antitrust immunity. We just need to make sure these guys aren't employees and then everything's okay. And these guys get nil compensation. So I want to take just a, a second uh, on this preemption issue to compare what the NCAA has claimed it is asking for. And that is preemption that is limited to name, image, and likeness. Because remember, the context in which this whole discussion about preemption and antitrust immunity and athletes can't be employees, that it came up was in these limitations built around nil. This is a limited preemption provision. Okay, so now let's look at the bills that came out of this very Commerce uh, Committee, one by the former chair, the other a, a ranking senior member. So it's Wicker was the chair and Moran is a senior guy. And he was the uh, chair of the subcommittee that conducted the very first hearing on this in February of 2020. So this Wicker bill and this bill was introduced in the Senate on December 10th of 2020. Remember, now, this is after the election and before the Georgia special elections. And there were a lot of people saying there's a lot of uncertainty here. And maybe the NCAA and their proxies in the Senate need to get a move on to try to get something done quickly. In fact, there was an article in Sports Illustrated the day before the election uh, that quoted Tom McMillan, who uh, is a former uh, basketball player, college and professional. He was a congressman. He was a Rhodes Scholar. He played on the 72 Olympic team. Great resume. But he's gone to the dark side, and he runs this company called Lead One, which shills for the interests of Power Five athletics directors. And he's been sort of navigating this uh, legislative campaign, at least through the lens of the athletic director interests. And he said, well, I had a conversation with Mark Emmert and I let him know that sometimes chaos can be a very fertile legislative ground. And the notion there was that sometimes uh, a little panic is required to concentrate minds in Washington and that this uncertainty post-election and pre-administrative takeover between the election and January 21st would be an opportunity for the NCAA to get something done in the fog of uh, transition. And the same environment exists now, or it's been manufactured with this looming July 1st deadline. But anyway, so Wicker does this bill on December 10th, which I think was the very same day the United States Supreme Court was conferencing on whether or not to take the Austin case and hear oral argument. And then on December 16th, it decided that it would. So I think Wicker was trying to push this bill out, get some momentum going for maybe a piece of legislation that was doable in all this insanity and chaos after the November election and the upcoming Georgia special election. So he proposes this bill, and it is titled the Collegiate Athlete Compensation Rights Act. And I said early in the episode, I might go through both of these bills, but these two bills are so bad. They are probably going to re require an episode each, both the Wicker bill and the Moran bill. But I, I want to highlight the preemption provision because both of those bills have everything that the NCAA wants and more than the NCAA ever asked for. And that is so, so important here. And Wicker and Moran are carrying the NCAA's water here. So when you go to... 
the preemption provision. And the way that these bills refer to preemption, they call it relationship to state laws. So Section 10 of Wicker's bill, titled Relationship to State Laws, states, and listen carefully here, and then we're going to go back and compare this to what the NCAA claims it was asking for through this working group in its final report in April of 2020. So Wicker's Section 10 reads, No state or political subdivision of a state may establish or continue in effect any law, regulation, rule, requirement, or standard that governs or regulates the compensation, publicity rights, employment status, or eligibility for competition of a student-athlete, including any provision that governs or relates to the commercial use of the name, image, or likeness of a student-athlete. And that is breathtakingly broad. And this provision, this preemption provision, that would give the federal government the authority to completely take state uh, legislatures and state decision makers out of the regulatory field of college sports would apply to any law, regulation, or, or requirement that relates to compensation, any compensation, any publicity rights. And it throws in the employment status. So this actually gets the employee, no employee thing done in a different way, at least at the state level. So states couldn't confer any employer-employee relationship on these athletes. And then it says, or eligibility. So eligibility goes actually broader than compensation limits. It would cover any rule that the NCAA deems to be an eligibility rule relating to compensation or otherwise, including name, image, and likeness. This is just a power grab of uh, unprecedented proportions. And when you go back and you look at how the working group framed their requests for preemption in this April 2020 final report, it's just amazing that Wicker has gotten away with this and that Moran has gotten away with this because Moran's preemption provision is identical to Wicker's. But again, the very first thing that this presidential subcommittee of the working group recommended in its engagement with Congress, and this really meant the Senate, was to ensure federal preemption over state name, image, and likeness laws. So that reads to me like they were limiting their request for preemption to state no laws. That's not at all what they're doing. And this is part of the bait and switch campaign. And again, this uh, final report, (laughs) this April 17th, 2020 report is written by lawyers for lawyers. And I'm going to go through this in detail because there's so many aspects of this report that really deserve a thorough vetting and discussion. But it's clear to me that very few people who have commented on the whole mill debate have actually read that entire document and digested it and looked at it critically and compared what is contained in that document to what is actually happening out in the field of legislation, in the House, in the Senate, in state legislatures, in the court of public opinion, in all these venues, in lobbying, in all these venues where the NCAA is saying one thing and doing another. And nobody's talking about it. It, 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 Again, it's just, I I don't know. Uh, There's a part of me, and I think uh, some people who have been part of the athletes' rights movement have just thrown up their hands and said, it's almost impossible. These people have just bought in hook, line, and sinker, and they want to believe the fantasy. It's a lot easier to believe the fairy tale than the truth. 
and they just stopped looking for the truth. And I think the, the NCAA has been hiding in the shadow of that feature of, of human nature. And it's a great fairy tale if you believe in it. Amateurism, collegiate model, student-athlete, amateur athletics, and all of this stuff. And that's not incompatible with an honest appraisal of what the NCAA is doing here. And it scares me that they're going to pull it off. That kind of brings me to the next thing that I guess I want to talk about, because I'm going to defer a discussion on the Wicker and Moran bills, because I really want to break them down. But what's the next step here? And the other feature, I guess I should say about these bills, I should address this, is that the purpose of the federal laws is fundamentally different than the purpose of the state laws. So there's a lot of discussion about nil legislation. And sometimes the federal bills and the state bills get put together in the same basket. And those two kinds of bills get conflated. But they serve fundamentally different purposes because the state bills, they can't grant the NCAA absolute immunity from federal antitrust laws, or they can't nullify other state laws. I don't think they can legally proclaim that athletes can't be employees. Some do that. Some try to do that. But on these extraordinary powers that the NCAA needs from the federal government, they can only get those from Congress. In the opening montage in this, I had all these quotes about, and this all came from one hearing, all those quotes from the montage about uniformity, national standard, patchwork, and all that stuff. Those all came from the June 9th hearing, and I didn't get them all. I was just going for the low-hanging fruit, just for editing purposes, because I I put that that together. I do all these montages myself, for better or worse. But all those came from one hearing. But these federal laws, because of their nature and purpose and their orientation towards these extraordinary federal powers and immunities— They have been presented to Congress in a very interesting, clever way. And that is, they they don't talk at all about specific nil rights. And a lot of them, all three of them, actually, the, the ones that I'm thinking about, Rubio, Wicker, Moran, they all have this independent entity that appears to make it look like there's going to be some objectivity in the development of specific nil rules. Because the authorizing legislation, these bills themselves, they don't talk about specific nil benefits or opportunities. They leave to this third-party commission, which in all three cases are really just disguises for letting the NCAA do this under a different label. But there's no specific nil rulemaking done until after the NCAA gets these extraordinary protections and immunities. So they get federal preemption, they get antitrust immunity, and they get a federal declaration that athletes can't be employees. They get all that before they have to commit to a single specific nil opportunity, a substantive nil opportunity. So these are not substantive nil laws. They are theoretical nil laws that create a framework built around these extraordinary protections and immunities. And my argument all along has been that if you follow that logic and you buy into that logic and you grant the NCAA and by proxy the Power Five, these extraordinary remedies that would give them the discretion to do nothing on nil, that's exactly what the NCAA is going to do. Nothing. Or just barely enough to make it seem like they can pass the blush test on nil. But the true purpose is to have absolute control of the regulatory market. And you really have to listen carefully and you have to be paying attention phrase by phrase, word by word to tease that out 
not just of the bills as they're written, but from the testimony that's been presented to Congress in particularly the first four hearings in 2020. In the September 15th, 2020 hearing in the House, I'm sorry, the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee that was chaired by Republican Tennessee uh, Senator Lamar Alexander, who since retired, he was openly hostile to nil benefits. But one of the witnesses there was Rebecca Blank. I've talked a lot about her, particularly in that episode six on Big Ten Secrets. And Blank is the chancellor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, a Power Five school. But she's been a pitch woman for the NCAA in Congress, and she's testified in, I think, the Austin suit and the federal antitrust suit, and she's been propagandizing everywhere she can. And she's also sitting on the NCAA Board of Governors. Surprise, surprise. But she's been a conduit for a lot of this propaganda. And the way that this happens at a lot of these hearings is that the NCAA-friendly senators know what they're going to ask of these NCAA-friendly witnesses, and it's pre-planned. It's orchestrated. And one of the things that came through Republican Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, who was all in for the NCAA, and then through Kentucky Republican Senator Rand Paul, got from blank was this notion. It was very subtle. You had to pay very close attention. And I'll I'll talk about this in detail when I go through all the hearings. But what they got from blank was that it was okay to set up this basic framework to grant the NCAA these extraordinary powers of preemption and antitrust immunity and athletes can't be employees. And then later, we'll worry about the details and any specific substantive nil benefits that may be forthcoming. And Blank said, yeah, yeah, that's that's good. That's what we want. That's why we're here. And that seemed to be an okay thing. And Scott was actively promoting that. He, He was part of the script, okay? And he and Lindsey Graham, the other senator from South Carolina, they're lockstep. And they're power five, big time SEC, ACC interests. They got Clemson in their backyard. You know, so you got to be sensitive to, to the power five interests there. But uh, we're talking about a very carefully manicured campaign to get all the power they need to protect their interests and no accountability, no responsibility. This goes back to what Senator Schatz finally got to. He was the first senator to get to this in that June 9th hearing, and that was, wait a minute, you're asking for all this stuff, but what are you giving up? And that's the second part of this. One, is there a federal interest worth protecting here? And the answer is obviously no. But even if you get to that, what are you giving up in exchange for that extraordinary federal protection and immunity? The NCAA is giving up nothing. And I'm not even sure where to begin in analyzing what the uh, NCAA or big-time college sports interest should be giving up in exchange. I would start with the dissolution of the NCAA or putting it into receivership and a forensic accounting of the NCAA before those powers are, are granted. And then we'll talk. And th- those are the kinds of discussions that should be happening. They would be happening in a responsible Congress, but they have been blinded and snowballed by the NCAA's power and on these mythical fairy tale visions of the amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete. And this leads me into, I think, the last thing I want to talk about, and that's how Maria Cantwell approaches this. And Maria Cantwell is the senator from Washington who is now the uh, chair of the Commerce Committee and is presiding over all these emergency hearings before July 1st. And there's this one coming up next week where athletes are supposed to testify. Actually, not next week. That's in two days. Today's June 15th. That's Thursday, June 17th. So Cantwell, I went back and looked at her testimony. She did not, she's on the Commerce Committee. 
She wasn't at that first hearing that was a subcommittee of commerce. Then the next hearing on July 1st of 2020 was all in the full commerce committee. And she was there. And the way she talked about the interest, it was clear to me, and this is not meant as a criticism because this is not uncommon among many senators. She wasn't super fluent with the big time college sports issues and the way that she talked about them, it was clear. But she was on board with preserving amateurism, but I'm not sure she had a fixed understanding of what that meant. And that dynamic inures directly to the benefit of the NCAA. She was clear that she didn't uh, support an antitrust exemption, and, and that's a good thing. But when she became the chair, Roger Wicker was the chair, so she and Wicker switch seats, and now Wicker is the ranking minority member as a Republican, and Cantwell's the chairperson. So now that they've switched seats, there's all this talk about bipartisanship. And when you go to the Commerce website, it's clear that Cantwell's trying to push bipartisanship. And there are a couple of bills that she and Wicker co-sponsored, and it's in big, bold letters and a kumbaya and bipartisanship. And that's a wonderful thing. I would love to see more of that. But bipartisanship for bipartisanship's sake doesn't really help a whole lot when the bipartisanship is landing on a terrible piece of legislation built on a pack of lies. And it's so seductive, if you're sitting in Maria Cantwell's chair, to just buy enough of the propaganda to justify to yourself going forward with some piece of legislation that you can slap on your website that says Cantwell Wicker. Wicker's not your friend here, Senator Cantwell. He's not the athlete's friend. And the things that you claim that you support, like no antitrust provision and trying to actually get some benefits for these athletes. And she's talked a lot about health and safety. That was one of the things she talked about at the July 1st, 2020 hearing. And she talked about it at the June 9th hearing just last week. But that's not going to happen in Roger Wicker's world. This is being done in the fog of a manufactured urgency. The sky is falling and the NCAA and all their minions want you to believe that. The sky isn't falling. It's never been falling. And the only urgency is the urgency that the NCAA has created for itself by its failure to act. By the fact that it has been lying to the American public, to the United States Congress, to federal courts, more importantly though, to the athletes who fund the entire business enterprise. They have no intention of doing what's right by these athletes. They're preserving their business model, they're preserving their income, they're preserving their power. And it's gonna be interesting to see what happens between now and July 1st, but I don't like the way this is headed and this bipartisanship theme has become uh, a really powerful one that is starting to mask some of the really important issues laying beneath that camouflage. It's really camouflage. And Roger Wicker sees it that way. He's way ahead of Maria Cantwell. Roger Wicker and Jerry Moran, they are light years ahead of Maria Cantwell on this issue. And Cantwell has said openly that she's relying on them and she's collaborating with them and she respects their opinions and she trusts their judgments. No, that's not where you want to be, Senator Cantwell. So anyway, we'll watch and see, and maybe, maybe the worm will turn and some of these issues will get the light of day in a public hearing. We can only hope. So anyway, I'm going to close that out, and then I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do for the next episode. I've got a, a day that I can get something up before these hearings on Thursday. And then, of course, I'm waiting for this Austin decision. I really believe it's going to come any day now, and that's going to be a Stop the Presses analysis and episode. So with that... I'll close this out. I just want to thank you so much 
for joining me. It's always an honor and a privilege, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.